Hi, y'all. I'm Nicole. I'm Bernie. And I'm Evie. And you're listening to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine and health justice. We are so excited for you to meet Dr. Rhea Boyd, a pediatrician and fierce advocate for health justice. In this episode, we learn about Rhea's journey into and through medicine, including the many hats she wears as an urgent care pediatrician, chief medical officer of San Diego 211, and director of equity and justice at the California Children's Trust. We are especially excited for you to hear about how Rhea's multifaceted experiences have given her hope to make the world safer for Black girls and Black boys around the world. In addition, we talk more about how to hold our medical institutions accountable to justice efforts and how to transform and go beyond current rhetoric around diversity and inclusion. So stay woke, y'all, and thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, ladies. How are you guys doing today? Good. It's finally sunny. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> a little bit. Okay. Yeah, you can call what? It, it was raining all weekend. See, this is your weather time, Bernie. Mm. Yeah, it's still really cold is the is oh, my true. issue, but true that's okay. That. Um, why don't we start him with a check-in? This is actually inspired by one of my mentors, Dr. Denise Davis, uh, who just always encourages us to think really positively and just to start things off by affirming ourselves and thinking of yeah, just good vibes. So she always likes to make us think of what is a victory that you've had this week or just what is something that you're doing well so i'll ask that of you guys what is what is a victory or what's something going on well this week so for me i am continuing taekwondo so okay shout out to the jmp for actually like i'm in medical school and shout taking out. taekwondo like as a class <laughs> like learning it and it's, like super awesome mm-hmm. so um cool. <laughs> yeah i'm like i'm i love it like there's these things where you like have to hit with like either you punch them or you kick them and they're like these little like leather things that like make this clapping sound when you hit them just right and it's so satisfying you have such a therapeutic look on your face it's like so amazing (laughs) i feel like we should get these and just have them after lecture in medical institutions just like boom 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 they're so amazing um but yeah so i really like that and that's good for you yes good for you girl watch out (laughs) y'all What about you, Bern? Okay. Um, we had our first Freedom School gathering on Thursday. This Ooh. is our third iteration. We started January 2018. So this is like complete 180. Yeah, 180. <laughs> 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 um, and it's just, it's such a beautiful space. Like, I really have not had enough time to really just like think about, um, think about doing like more outreach because for some reason they're around like, 35 people in that room everyone comes from such different backgrounds and corners of the bay area so we have like med students public health students community organizers people from like social work um architecture english like what in one (laughs) room (laughs) for the freedom school for intersectional medicine and health justice where we center the narratives of women of color doing health justice work and that historical work and it just blows my mind every single time, like, and how every single person there, you know, we don't really do, like, hella outreach. Like, we like we post on little Facebook groups or, like, send it out to two listers, but somehow it gets around, and then people come, and when they say why they're there, it's really because of, like, word of mouth, or they, like, heard it from another person that's, like, this was a really dope space for um, so-and-so, and they wanted to really witness that. And so it's just, like... I'm really grateful to that space and to all the people I met 
And it's just such a validating space where like you feel seen. And I think a lot of times like, I realize I move through the world and I'm like, oh my God, I don't feel seen. And mm -hmm. so I realize, yeah, being in those spaces is really powerful. So shout out to Freedom School Iteration number three, like y'all the real ones, it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll share mine too. I actually just came back from LA this morning. So <laughs> I guess my victory was actually just spending time with some of my friends and my mom and just, yeah, just getting to enjoy their company, see them, take a break from studying for a hot minute and just yeah, relax. Go to downtown LA. Go to go to a club with my friends. <laughs> like, like that's a little victory in and of itself. It just going is. out dancing and mm. just like sort of taking that load off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because SF to LA is really not that far, but it's like we don't get to go that often with our schedule. So a little victory in and of itself, just to take that time to go down for the weekend and spend some time with my loved ones. So mm -hmm. that'd be mine. Yeah, and for this episode, we are so grateful to have Dr. Rio Boyd in the room with us. Yes. Yay. Yay. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> She's really impressed with all these legit mics <laughs> we have in this room. So, yeah, Rio, what is, a, what is a, a strength or a highlight of your past week? I'm going to flip it a little bit and say mm -hmm. a present and a future one because mm -hmm. these mics are super legit. And I feel like when I walked in here just to see y'all three women so prepped, so ready. I mean, it looks like NPR in here. <laughs> <laughs> the vibe is just good. And it made me feel like, damn, like shit is working out. You know, like, so, I don't know if we can curse on this podcast, but <laughs> right, we do. sometimes you just wonder, like, am I finding myself in the spaces that nourish me? And I feel like really quickly it felt like this is one of those spaces. Mm -hmm. And one that I'm looking forward to is um, at the end of the week, I'm giving a talk in Cincinnati for their, like, at their children's hospital. Um, they're having this equity day. It's their first um, annual equity day. And I've been giving talks in some grand rounds, but it felt you were talking about feeling seen. Like I felt very seen because I've been trying in pediatrics as a pediatrician to raise my profile as somebody who cares and thinks deeply about equity and racism from a very particular lens. And um, for those that don't know, the um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital is like always consistently one of the top three children's hospitals in the country. They're known as being a really prominent research center. Like they're like heavy minds in pediatrics. And so I feel like, you know, just feeling glad and grateful to be invited to tables like that to talk about something that maybe isn't their bread and butter, but it's something I'm trying to make more mine, so. Hmm. Yes. I'm just, <laughs> yes. I'm just so, so grateful to have you here. And I'm also just thinking about um, all the amazing work that I have witnessed and read about you and seen you really put out into the world throughout your career. And I'm like, y'all, Rhea and I met through Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> like, doctors roll hard on Twitter. <laughs> um, but not everyone is just so friendly to, like, really reach out and um, actually engage with you in such a meaningful way. And um, Rhea has so many accolades, and so I think it really does mean something for you to 
be here, be present, to meet with me on your like free time to really just talk about more what, of what we vision as like the upcoming generation of physicians. Like again, there's just like a realness and a genuity there that like yeah, we really appreciate you being here. We know you're hella busy. No, I, honestly, the pleasure is totally mine. This is already the best part of my day so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. We appreciate you. So we wanna we wanna first just see what what really founded you and grounded you. And so what really brought you into medicine and also into your career as an advocate, um, especially as a pediatrician? Before we started, the part that the podcast listeners are going to miss is that we all (laughs) went around and shared some of their um, stories about what brought people thinking more about this. And I think mine is very similar. Um, I as a child knew I wanted to be like a pediatrician from a really early age. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, oh, I want to be a doctor. It wasn't like, I really care about science. There was something specific that I envisioned about the work pediatricians do to like make the world safer for children. And I just kind of held tight to that. Like that's something that I used to, our family's pretty religious when I was growing up and it's something I used to pray about at night. Like who's looking out for kids whose parents aren't looking out for them? And I hope I'm one of those adults. And I think I always envisioned pediatricians as that type of adult. Um, and then as I like went through you know, formal education, I kept asking those same questions. Like, what does it mean to look out for kids? And what is it that kids need? And I think it was when I got to college, <clears throat> I went to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Um, and there we didn't have like a major, you could be like pre-professional studies if you wanted to go to medical school and you would take all the prerequisites. But we didn't have one that would help me understand what my experience was growing up as like a little black girl in America. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I need a mix of both. Like, I wanna know what keeps like little black girls safe in America. And I need an education that prepares me to ask questions about that. So um, I don't know if it's the case now, but back then there was like a page at the very end of like our course requirement manual that said like and if you don't find what you're looking for here you can make up your own major and it had nothing under it it was just like one little sentence at the very back and I was just like awesome (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to do that I bet exactly (laughs) let's do it so I made up my own major which if your school lets you do that I highly encourage this for people who are in college or high school students thinking about going to college because I just had so much control like you get your pick of classes anyway it was amazing and so I paired together a major in Africana studies which at that time didn't have its own major um, at the University of Notre Dame so Africana studies is like the study of the African diaspora and I particularly focused on the African-American experience of that diaspora or the spread of black people across the globe from Africa Um, and then I paired that with Um, anthropology and American studies and economics to ask questions about like what does it mean to center what we're learning in organic chemistry and biology and what I know about history and what we know about oppression and are these two things related and that was like pre-terms like social determinants of health like Mm. we didn't wow and that's not to say science didn't recognize that right like from the beginning people have said, I think social things make people sick. Like that's super dated, probably back to like the 1600s or something like that. Probably even earlier than that. Um, But people have formally said it for a long time, but we didn't have that like tangible language in the academy where you as a student could say, that's my interest. Like 
Mm. hook me up with a faculty member who cares about social determinants like that wasn't a thing mm. and people didn't get my major but I fulfilled all the requirements that I made up for myself and so it was just <laughs> like uh, you know I'm gonna make up my own language and then it was nice because it was at the same time that there was this expansion of language mm. that I could find my interests more reflected at every subsequent stage so then when I got to medical school I could say you know I'm interested in social determinants and what does that mean um, and then in medical school, I was really active in our Student National Medical Association. Yeah, shout out to the <laughs> SNMA, <laughs> putting black people on since forever because, you know, I needed the freedom that I found in my undergrad education I was looking for in medical school, and medical school was really rigid. It was like, mm-hmm. you can't take social science courses at the same time that you're taking your medical school curriculum. So the way that I found freedom to flex and do more community work, which it sounds like you ladies are also doing, during your experience was like through SNMA. It was like mm-hmm. SNMA would give us funding, SNMA would let us do community-based projects. Like we could just make up what we wanted. Um, and so then I continued to ask those same questions and then when it came to choose residencies, I knew I wanted to be a pediatrician but I also knew I wanted to be at a program that would further that education for me that would match community engagement with learning how to care for people and their health ailments ailments and so um, I only chose programs that had advocacy tracks now the requirements for pediatric training has changed and so everybody every program has to have some kind of I think now it's two months of a requirement of community-based education Um, but I wanted to go to programs and I ended up coming to UCSF where they had a separate match where they had a concentrated curriculum that focused on this with a leadership training so it's not just like learn how these things relate but learn how do you talk about that learn how do you research that um, and how do you write about that which is also one of my interests so I think that's how I came to this point wow <laughs> casual oh my gosh when you're talking about how you really cared about like oh what does it mean how do I keep a little black girl safe um, and just how you were able to create your major and you were like, you know what, I'm going to look at like Africana studies and I'm also going to look at anthropology. I'm also going to look at economics, just like the insights to do that in college. In college, mm-hmm. I was just like, ooh, yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> this major mm-hmm. sounds okay. Mm-hmm. Like, so I just think you having the foresight before you said, like you said, before those terms were even, uh, before people even knew what those terms were, before they were even really created, like that's mm-hmm. very impressive. And mm-hmm. it's really cool to see just that dedication from childhood all the way through adulthood, through medical school, really following that through, like having that vision and seeing it through. Yeah, that I was just inspired listening to your story. Like, <laughs> wow, like you knew what you wanted and you really committed in a really meaningful, like purposeful way. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say it wasn't exploratory. I wouldn't say that I knew, honestly, at any point what my career looks like now. Mm. And post-residency, it got really difficult to keep going down this path of, like, I'm going to make up my own way because, you know, then you need to get paid. Then it's like, (laughs) I actually have to choose some things that are pre-existing so that I can put food on my own table and have Mm -hmm. health insurance and things like that. So it's not to say I didn't fully explore, which I super encourage. But I think I relate to you ladies in this forum that you've created because like if something doesn't exist that you think needs to be there for your own edification for your own learning for your own community like Mm -hmm. you create that Mm -hmm. I think I'm a product of that Mm -hmm. I continue to do that and you guys are the generation but you know (laughs) I'm doing that exact same thing we're learning from you it's dope to see you (laughs) (laughs) and you 
you have multiple roles. Like you're such a multifaceted person. What are the different roles that you play, the different hats that you wear right now? This is another thing I always say to medical students when they ask me. They're like, I have a bunch of interests. And all my advisors are saying, just choose one. Mm-mm. You don't have to choose one. You don't got to choose one. Don't choose one. No. Do them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm one of those people who... You were actually one the first person who was like, no, you're going to keep doing it. You're going to keep doing the things that you care about. Like, no one's going to tell you... Because I kept telling you, like, I'm so scared for residency. Like, I have never heard of a happy resident. And you're like, nope, you're going to keep doing it. You're going to keep tr- being true to you. You were the <laughs> only person who told me that. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad to just be any part of y'all's story because I know, <laughs> you know, you're already doing amazing things. Like, that honors me that you say that. Like, I think that's, I'm glad we could have that exchange. Yeah. I think, um, I feel that way in general about how we approach careers in medicine, especially if we're going, if you're thinking about marginalized or oppressed communities. Like, you really have to think outside the box because the system was created without us in mind. And mm-hmm. so you can't just make small changes at the edges mm-hmm. of that and think you're about to change how the system works. Like, you really got to upend it. Mm-hmm. And I think it really requires thinking outside the box about what your role in that could be. Mm-hmm. If you put these narrow constraints around it where you're like, I'm a physician, which means once you break your arm, I can see you. Mm-hmm. Right? Or once you're sick and you have a cold, or if you think it's influenza, here I am. It's like, no, like I'm actually identifying and creating language and thinking about all of the ways in which our health is folded in to how we exist in the world and thinking about all the protections we can put around kids so they reach their potential. Mm-hmm. And that requires thinking outside my individual role. And doing that makes me feel more fulfilled professionally. It's not like a, it's probably not for everybody, but I think for how my mind works and it sounds like for how you ladies' minds work, it's, it makes it easier to go into clinic knowing that I can also do community-based projects and it makes it easier to do my community-based projects I also know I can talk to somebody Mm -hmm. one-on-one can you walk us through a week with Rhea Mm. like or (laughs) (laughs) so my weeks are always really different I'll tell you I wear primarily three hats right now three formal hats so I'm a pediatrician I work clinically I've worked clinically since training um, part-time So about 50% of my time, or half of it, is spent in a pediatric urgent care in Palo Alto where I see, like, broken bones and influenza, which is why I brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) I see that all the time. Um, But I chose that, and, you know, it chose me as well because it's the perfect – it was a really good fit for somebody who had multiple interests because when you work in urgent care, an emergency room, like when I'm not there, there's somebody else who's following up labs, somebody else who's calling families. So I literally can work part-time and just part-time, which is hard for a lot of primary care doctors who are kind of always on the clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked there part-time, and then I, just in the past year, became the chief medical officer for San Diego 211. 211 is a national organization that's run regionally often with like a United Way affiliate. They're a nonprofit that is a number that basically you can call if you need any social service. So if you need to fill out a food stamps form or you need to be connected to a food pantry and you need a human navigator, 2-on-1 is that old school phone-based system where like a human walks you through it. Mm -hmm. Now there's been a ton of iterations on 2-on-1. So there's all these apps that you can have on your phone. What I really dig about 2-on-1 is that as we continue to automate our social services and like the ways that we help, you know, like humans help humans, 
some people are cutting humans out of that equation and two and one is still really invested in a human workforce to do it and I think just like in medicine that human touch is always really critical when somebody's in like a crisis situation um, so with them we're thinking through what do social determinants mean for their health engagement with other partners in San Diego so we kind of I help them apply for grants and write strategy around racial equity and around risk. Mm-hmm. So how does risk for food insecurity relate to risk for obesity or things like that? Mm-hmm. And then the other hat I wear is as the director of equity and justice for this new initiative called the California Children's Trust, which is this ambitious campaign to, over the next two years, try to drastically expand the way that we fund and the way we administer, the way we deliver behavioral health services to kids in California. So <clears throat> it's a project that's thinking about mental health services, developmental services, and like the social, emotional well-being of kids across the state. California is doing a really terrible job with developmental screenings. We're 47th mm-hmm. in the state for early childhood developmental screenings. Um, we're doing a terrible job with um, acute mental illness. We have rising rates of hospitalization, rising rates of suicide. Transitional age youth in our state are the um, population that are most likely to abuse substances. Two-thirds of transitional age youth do. Um, now, nationally, suicide is like the second leading cause of death for adolescents, which leapfrogged cancer. So it's like... We really have a behavioral health crisis on our hands and our team is thinking about how do we change the game because right now the behavioral health system is really segmented it's like if you're in school the behavioral health system says if you don't behave in this way right and you act in a way that we don't condone Mm -hmm. we criminalize that behavior Mm -hmm. for too many of our black and brown youth and we send you down a punitive path to juvenile justice and we know the behavioral health you know thoughts of juvenile justice and then in healthcare, it's like, well, for us to give you any mental health service, at least in our state, you have to actually have a diagnosis first. Mm-hmm. But that requires us like pathologizing kids who are just kids who are just trying to grow up, who don't have or need, honestly, a diagnosis for us to offer you like a preventative service. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to change some of the requirements. So Medicaid, which is the largest insurer for kids in our state it insures like 6.2 million kids can basically totally change how it engages kids around their behavioral health needs for them for their family and for their neighborhood um so those are kind of the hats i wear right now and then i'm on twitter and then i have my <laughs> <laughs> like those are some big hats you got on. <laughs> do you ever f- so you were talking behind the scenes y'all unfortunately don't get to hear behind the scenes but we also have very rich conversation that and you were mentioning a bit about this too is that um tackling the bigger societal issues that really affect those individuals um is a lot of what fulfills you um what gives you hope in these in in dreaming about that but also are there ever times where you just feel like overwhelmed and like man these are huge issues how are we actually going to solve them Definitely. And I'd be so curious to hear how you guys feel, but there are like, it almost makes me emotional to even think about, like there are low points. 
because this work feels like it implicates me personally, because what I'm trying to do is make the world safer for black girls and black boys, like my family, and then, you know, expand that to other kids who face other forms of oppression, it's like, coming off the 2016 election was a dark time, and we're still in those dark times. And when you're working on, when I got called to do like the Children's Trust, it felt like a light of hope because it's like, there are some people whose role is going to be to just hold the line, to as the federal government tries to draw back protections and change funding streams so that vulnerable communities don't have what they need to survive and it makes them more vulnerable because of it. Like some people are just, you know, standing on the other side, literally of a wall and pushing pushing against it. But at the same time, there's some people who are like burrowing a hole and what the Children's Trust is doing is like, in this federal funding environment, we are trying to completely switch up like how we pay for behavioral health. Like under a Trump administration, we're trying to you know, pay for kids who, pay for things that you never thought you would spend like Medicaid dollars to pay for. Like if you went to juvenile justice and we know your risk of recidivism or returning to incarceration over three years is 80% in California, which is the truth. Like, we want to pay for a neighborhood-level intervention for you because, you know, we read the data that says for black boys who grow up in neighborhoods that don't have fathers, right, which starts with the school-to-prison pipeline as we pluck black boys and then men out of communities, like, it matters that fathers are present not in their own household but in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So should Medicaid be doing something to pay when we know a child is at risk in that neighborhood of being caught up in this carceral complex to pay for their neighborhood to have an intervention to keep other men there? Like, we're really trying to think outside the box, and it feels like a lot of hope to do that during a time of such dire straits, you know? And that's just one kind of example. What do you do to take care of yourself? things that you did during medical school, things that you do now? Um, Good question. I sleep a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I sleep a lot. One great thing about my urgent care job is it's evenings. So clinic closes at 9, so I get home around 10 usually, but we don't – our shifts don't start. My shifts don't usually start till 1 or 3, so I sleep. Um, I work out. You ladies are talking about your workout thing. I love UCSF gym. Shout out to UCSF. (laughs) Um, And I think I try to put myself in rooms like this. Like when I first got invited to the Children's Trust, they were speaking a completely different language than I was. And although we were aligned on some things, I really wanted to bring more heart around what we're doing to address inequities in California and how we really broadly define inequities. Because sometimes we talk a lot about like black and brown kids, but if you're talking about behavioral health, like white kids who live in Northern California and white Mm -hmm. adults have the highest rates of suicide in our entire state. Mm -hmm. These are red areas, these are areas that voted for Trump, and these are areas that are disproportionately um, financially stable. Like Mm -hmm. they have the lowest rates of poverty across the state. So if if we describe equity in ways that where we think about populations just based on your race we might miss those kids Mm -hmm. or we might miss the kids in Palo Alto a couple years ago who had the highest rates of suicide in the state um so I guess I say that to say our um 
working on this project feels a little bit like self-care mm-hmm. um, and giving back to myself a little bit and giving back to the communities that I care about and it pushes me intellectually, keeps me sharp. Um, and then finding communities like this who care about the same things. And this mm-hmm. project is also giving me an ability to pull together people to say, what would you do to address this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had said something in terms of um, this work being very emotional work. And I think about that all the time, just like whether that's um, you read, I mean, for medical students, it's like you read the textbook and you see a lot of your communities being pathologized or just like not enough data is there as to like why do those disparities disparities exist and you see genetics or um, these like precision medicine interventions being like the go-to versus really realizing the social determinants of health or I feel like every single day is just a realization of um, especially in the classroom of how limited medicine is taught and how much how much for especially us as women of color and a lot of underrepresented folks that we have to actively do the extra work to find these soulful spaces of which to remember like why are we here and like yes it is okay for all of these issues to really just like always be on our mind because like this is a work we were called to do especially in medicine where it has such a disproportionate effect on the livelihood and the health outcomes and life or death situations for so many of the people that we care about, it's like, yeah, this is gonna be like heart-wrenching work. And sometimes I like look at my peers and I'm just like, is really all you care about like this mechanism? Like, do you not really see like how the humanity is, we are like really stripped devoid, like stripped devoid of that throughout this whole training and I sometimes look around the room and I'm like, am I crazy? Like, am, <laughs> am I crazy? Like, and I'm, I think I'm really coming to that realization where I'm like, I'm not. And like, I'm not crazy for like still feeling so deeply and caring so deeply and like pushing boundaries in the classroom. Um, because like, I, I know it does matter. And like what you said, basically, yeah, it definitely resonates because it does inhabit my mind all the time. I mean, not only are you not crazy, but there are people like me who are trying to be faculty at places to acknowledge that you actually have a skill. Like that is something that we should name. Like if you can look at that mechanism and not just learn that pathway, but also think zoom out above the biochemical mechanism to think about how that plays out at a larger level, like population health is a huge thing. And if you're thinking about that in medical school, that's incredibly advanced. And there are new departments created for people who have those skills. And so we should name those as skills instead of like ostracizing students who use a different lens to interrogate what they're learning. We should be like, wow, tell us how you're doing that and honor their voice. Give them space to teach us how to see it the way they see it. And we were also behind the scenes talking talking about um, these buzzwords of diversity and inclusion and kind of giving the side eye to really being like, are these institutions really about it? Mm-hmm. Mm, we don't know. So what are your thoughts on that? Your Where's your headspace on all of where we are with diversity, inclusion, medicine? 
I mean, I'm curious to know what you guys think. I partly feel like a little bit failed, honestly, by the diversity and inclusion paradigm. Like, it just is not offering us the language or the process that we need to really talk about racial inequity or racism on its face, you know? Like, I've been doing some speaking around <clears throat> this topic because I really want us to think more about it in medicine and think about the impact of the language we've been even just using. Like, first, where did this language come from? I argue it in part came from the Supreme Court Bakke case that was at UC mm -hmm. Davis. Yeah. Uh, that was back in 1978. It was after Alan Bakke, this 35-year-old white veteran engineer, applied to medical school at UC Davis. He initially applied to like 12 medical schools, including UC Davis. He was denied from all 12 medical schools. That was back in um, 1973. And in 74, he applies to Davis again, and he's denied from Davis. That year, I think he only applied to Davis, something because like his family lived in California and he wanted to be closer. Anyway, he gets denied from Davis again, and then he sues, and it goes all the way to Supreme Court, and Bakke says, Davis discriminated against me because I have this special admissions program. And back then, Davis had two admissions tracks. It had this general admissions program, and it had the special admissions program. And the general admissions program had this GPA cutoff of, I think it was like 2.5, and below which you'd just be denied. The special admissions program didn't have a GPA cutoff, and it said it was for students who self-identified as like educationally or economically disadvantaged, which is their words, and or like a racial and ethnic minority. And then the four years from 74 to 78, zero from when Bakke applied to when it went to the Supreme Court, zero white students were admitted despite multiple, many applying through that program. So basically even though it said we would admit, you know, students who are economically or educationally disadvantaged, it only admitted racial and ethnic minorities who are non-white. And the special admissions program held 16 spots. And so what the Supreme Court said is it basically gave us the language of the diversity and inclusion paradigm. The first thing they said, Justice Powell, who had the, he wrote the um, formal decision of the court, he said, diversity is a compelling state interest. And it, when you use race in admissions programs at, you know, he's referring to UC Davis, you can only use it to advance this compelling state interest of diversity. Like that's where race matters. Mm -hmm. And then his colleagues, the other justices, went on to say like, the other reason you could use race is to address what they called chronic underrepresentation of minority populations. And these are the words we use now, right? We talk about diversity and we blow that up past even thinking about race to think about all of the different identities people might hold. And then we think about underrepresentation. But what that switch does is it disables us from using a language around racism and exclusion. Like mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion is not just about including people of diverse perspectives, which is often how it has been kind of watered down and reduced at this point. It's about including human beings who we have made to hold race as the reason for their exclusion. Mm -hmm. And we have violently excluded mm -hmm. them over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have this distilled language about underrepresentation that is essentially a misnaming. Mm -hmm. It's not about underrepresentation. It's about violent, racist exclusion, mm -hmm. at least in terms of race. Mm -hmm. And one could argue in terms of gender, and one could argue in terms of sexual orientation. And so I partly want to have a conversation across the field, across medicine, about like, 
what is this language we're using and to what end? And specifically for other advocates, am I going to use that same language? Like, how do I get specific about what I mean when I say diversity and inclusion? And how I've been doing that is really abandoning those terms and talking specifically about racial inequity, talking specifically about inequality, and talking specifically about racism and the violent devastation racism entails, Mm -hmm. which we completely divorce our diversity inclusion paradigm from that when we talk about something like Mm underrepresentation, you know, because then we focus on the numbers, Mm -hmm. like if only there were this sufficient acceptable number, then things would be okay. Mm -hmm. Like people aren't just randomly underrepresented, right? They are excluded. Mm -hmm. And that process is intentional Mm-hmm. and systemic it's systematic mm-hmm. like you are excluded because you weren't given the tools needed to even apply mm-hmm. right you weren't given the tools needed or the opportunity to then be promoted or to enjoy the benefits of being included even if you did apply and were accepted like you are excluded from pathways to mobility because of your entrance Right, like it is a type of exclusion that's intergenerational, and that's what we're facing in medicine, in housing, and in any employment sector. And so, to talk about that is just like we should just have people who are different. Mm -hmm. That's nowhere near enough. Like we're speaking a different language, and Mm -hmm. I think I've tried to separate my work from that, honestly, so that I can be more specific about what I mean when I talk about racism. Mm I think you bring up a great point in terms of like, it is intentional. Like, all this shit is intentional. And it's like, there was an agenda when these institutions were made for you to not be here. And I think what medicine, especially medicine, oh, medicine, (laughs) especially what medicine has a problem is, problem with is confronting its violent history like it is it is really crazy how we're not taught about the Tuskegee the, the, the Tuskegee trials and all of those different um, instances of violent racism and just violent experimentation that is inherent in so many of the diagnoses treatment um, tools that we use mm-hmm. it's um, it's a failing to all learners that we don't know where the origins of these things come from and it's a fault to think that we are an institution of healing when actually a lot of our past is brought up on that violent history yeah. i guess my question for you ria now is what can we do to change these institutions like what is the work that physicians can do what is the work that med students can do how do we how do we uproot the system how do we change the narrative and change the conversation to reduce this violence. Well, I don't know if we can, well, we can try to reduce this violence, yeah. Yeah, what I've been talking about is, as a pediatrician, I've um, kind of put it into a developmental framework. I think different institutions are at different stages of trying to address it. Um, I think that first stage is a more symbolic stage. It's low-hanging fruit to say, these are our values. This is what matters to us around, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion. Um, And there is utility to that symbolic move. Because once you say these are our values, people in that institution who want to push it a little further 
then bring up those values, right? You say, this isn't our mission statement. You need to hold yourself accountable to what we all say we care about. So although it's not where we eventually want to go, symbolic types of diversity and inclusion efforts can be really important. That next developmental stage is um, more descriptive. It's around like numbers. Who gets to sit at the table and what do their faces look like and how do we represent their faces on our website and on pamphlets and our promotional materials. A lot of institutions are sitting right there right now. Like symbolic was like, you know, 10, 20 years ago when we were like, we're gonna put this in our mission statement, we really care about it. Mm -hmm. Something like 80% of public institutions talk about diversity in their, you know, mission statement. Mm -hmm. But only 20% actually define that diversity in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. So once you get to the descriptive stage, you're trying to think specifically about the numbers of what racial and ethnic diversity looks like. Mm -hmm. And usually where people shake out is they're like, I think our population, either our workforce or the population that we serve, should reflect the percentages people have in the general population. But that can become a little bit problematic when you put a number on it like that. You know, in medicine, we love evidence and we love data. Mm -hmm. And so we want to set a benchmark. Once we meet that benchmark, we want to feel good about it. (laughs) Right? Right. But who said that, like, we, if black people are 11 to 13% of the U.S. population, that they should be, like, 11 to 13% of doctors? Like, I just don't know where that math comes from like if certain people are interested in this field we should have a way of tracking that there are no barriers to your Mm -hmm. participation Mm -hmm. particularly if your medical school is located in a place where there's even more people there who might be interested or a population who disproportionately suffers from certain illnesses who might like to be represented in the system that serves those illnesses Mm -hmm. so I think there is space to move even from this descriptive land to what I've been calling substantive. And I didn't make these categories up. I got them from um, research from the 70s looking at the politics of representation and thinking Mm. about what are all the different politics there. And there's Mm. symbolic politics, descriptive politics, and then substantive politics. And I'm hoping that what to do about this is to move our institutions towards substantive politics to say, regardless of our composition, we are going to center communities that have been harmed Mm -hmm. and we are going to serve them better. We're gonna own that we have not done this well at the workforce level and at the client-facing, patient-facing level. Um, And then we're gonna fix that. Not once we get, you know, a black woman to be the head of Mm -hmm. the Department of Equity, but like right now, hold us all accountable to that. The downside there sometimes is that then you say, well, we don't even need that black woman to be the head of the, mm-hmm. you know, Department of Equity <laughs> yeah, or whatever because yeah, yeah. we've we got to do this, do this on our own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the point is not to say that, but just to say remove whatever barriers currently keeping institutions from doing this work and just mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Like stop talking about it and saying this is what we care about. Like live those values. Mm-hmm. How do y'all think, especially as med students and like people in medicine, like, do we feel like these institutions are living these values? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like I was really resonating with a lot of the things you were saying. And I feel like, like you said, a lot of them are, I think are stuck in that symbolic or descriptive phase where, you know, they have these mission statements, they have these values. And I believe these people do truly believe in them. But I think it's going to be really hard to get to the substantive sta- stage until they're actually um, people of color or people who from those communities that have been harmed that are actually at the table. Because if you're not in a community that's been harmed, 
I mean, I would, I would hope, I would hope that you would care just as much as the people who actually have lived it, who have experienced it, who have seen it in their daily lives. But I just think the truth of the matter is that if you haven't lived it, if you haven't experienced it, if it's not your community, your investment in it is so much less, and the progress that you're able to make is just significantly reduced until you have those people where it actually matters to them, or it's something that. Um, where it's personal. Like you were saying before how when you see things happening to little black girls or little black boys, it feels like it, 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 it's such an emotional experience because it feels like it's some, someone in your family. It feels like it's happening to you. And when you feel like it's happening to you or to people that you love or those communities that you love and you cherish, um, I think you're just so much more motivated to make that happen. So I think until we have more people at the table who have been affected in this way, um, progress going to be slow. <laughs> it's gonna it's not gonna move and i would love to say that um everyone like the, i'd love to say that these people that are up there can hold themselves accountable or like and i believe that people truly do want it i just think that the motivation uh is just not it's not as strong and so i just don't know how it can happen until there's some infiltration mm -hmm. <laughs> there has yeah. to be some of that in order for i think things to really get moving yeah, I think like 100% agree. I think that was so eloquently put, UVA. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think back also to like, you know, even like supporting the students that are currently in medical school now, like we've had to create different things, including this podcast, to really like question what's going on in the medical institution because we realize that something's not right. And we're creating this space because like Bernie said earlier, like, to realize we're not crazy. Like this is something that's happening to multiple people. It's just, it's it's the system. And so um, I think the, the fact that we have to create these spaces and we have to like be here at 6 p.m. at night after we had gone to school all day, yeah. like that's also more proof of what's actually happening with the diversity initiatives that are happening in, in institutions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah, we've created like Freedom School, which is a healing space really for people that are going through this experience and not just medical school, but like social work, um, you know, public health. And so just realizing that we're creating these spaces that these schools are not creating for themselves to support the people that they believe mm -hmm. should be included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to all of y'all's points, I think like I need these institutions to like just just do the work, just like, just do the work. You know what I mean? Like, and <laughs> this but they've never had to do the work. Right. You know and what I mean? So, no like, one's ever feel, forced right. them to do the work. And so they feel like all a little antsy. Like, how do I do the work? Like, yeah. give me phrases on how to do the work. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, <laughs> there was, um, we were like in the class the other day. And I think for, <laughs> it's just really interesting, I think, being um, one of the students where we had observed that a lot of medical students want like specific phrases on like how to ask people of, like identities where they may not be familiar with for, or cared for, like, how do I be, how do I communicate as a good person and acknowledge my blind spots? And I feel like this can also be applied on like an institutional level where it's like, I can only tell you so much of like, this is my perspective and like, this is my only perspective. Like I'm not going to represent all like Filipino, Chinese, first generation, like this is my perspective, but like, if your work comes from a place of like centering equity, centering voices that have been excluded, and yes, you're gonna slip up, like you're gonna fuck up, and like, <laughs> and like, that is your job to acknowledge that, like, 
And I feel like it's been on so many folks of color, women of color, people not here to like explain that and constantly have that minority tax of like, this is how you do it without seeing the work happen. And like, yes, we're not expecting you to like repair so much of like the, hist the history of racism in medicine, but like we acknowledge that like you need to be doing the work. Like we can't just be advising you and creating these working groups because it's like we need to see it um, and also like see it by the people on these leadership committees, but also like y'all just need to keep doing it. Like start now. Mm -hmm. Completely agreed. I think that's the point of the substantive stage to say you hold yourself accountable to actually doing the work and that's regardless of who you are because I used to also agree that we need more people of color who understand the experience of populations that have been excluded from medicine and haven't been well cared for in medicine and have been harmed within the doors of medicine so that we can serve people of color and those populations better. It's like once we include you, then we're gonna do a better job serving you. Mm -hmm. But the logic behind that. It's not contingent. Yes, mm -hmm. is saying like, I mean it's almost like a segregationist logic. Like the mm -hmm. best one to serve you is one of your own kind. Mm -hmm. And the truth is if we wait for that, like how many people have to die and still mm -hmm. get sick and not mm -hmm. get good care while we wait to have enough? Like if we're just waiting True. for enough black physicians, 4% of the physician population is black. Like there ain't enough of us. Even in San Francisco where nobody is black, there's not enough. How many black faculty <laughs> do you have? I'm the only black doctor where I work. Like mm. there's not enough of us if that's what it requires for us to care for black people well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's completely unacceptable mm -hmm. for us to still say, well, we're not doing this well because we don't have enough black people. Like, right. no, mm -hmm. right? Like Gucci mm -hmm. just came out with that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna switch gears here, but this shit is happening across sectors, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. and not just in health and human services sectors. Like Gucci was just called to the carpet for basically having blackface on that turtleneck sweater that you pulled mm -hmm. up that black sweater mm -hmm. and then it had right. those red lips that looked crazy and any human could mm -hmm. see that that looked exactly like blackface. And what did they say in their apology? They said, we need more diverse mm -hmm. designers, right? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. If you wait till we have more diverse designers, that is mm -hmm. absolving you of the responsibility and accountability mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. put that out. Mm -hmm. You were wrong. That has nothing to do with who wasn't there. That has to do with who was there mm -hmm. and how you guys are dedicating yourself to being better, to mm -hmm. doing the work. Mm -hmm. Like, don't tell me about like, oh, if we would have had Keisha in here. No, you wouldn't have. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> If you would have had Keisha in here, she would have said that looked crazy, and everyone would have been like, gosh, Keisha's always mm -hmm. so annoying. Mm -hmm. right. She's always She's so, so negative. Mm -hmm. She's so angry. Why are you always complaining? Mm -hmm. Let's get some solutions-oriented feedback. Right? right? Mm -hmm. This is what leads to workplace <laughs> dissatisfaction mm -hmm. and school dissatisfaction for students who start to get included. Like, if the system doesn't actually change before you get there, you get there, and then it asks you to carry this additional burden or tax of doing all the work, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, now they whoever is here, they're gonna be the one mm -hmm. who cares about this more because it affects them more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This affects all of us. Like just before I came here, the data I was looking at was about the mortality rate of white people in the United States. So I was looking at it because when I often give this talk, I talk about racism and I talk about how 
black people are faring worse across the board. And honestly, across health indicators, we always should include Native Americans, Mm -hmm. especially for children, Mm -hmm. in almost all the health indicators there with black people or below in terms of faring poorly. Um, But what we miss there when we talk about the racial wealth gap, when we talk about the educational achievement gap, we miss that white people are sick because of racism too. Like the mortality rate for white people since 1999 has been going up. Mm -hmm. That is an aberration in any developed country in the world. Every developed country since the 70s, essentially, have had mortality rates that decrease over time. Mm. We think it's because of healthcare, right? There's less pandemics, you have more access to care if people get sick so people don't die at as high of rates. And because if your country's not war-torn, young people aren't falling out of the population at higher rates either. So if you look at our peer nations, everyone's is going down. If you look at U.S. Hispanics, theirs is like in the middle of peer nations. Like they have a pretty low, actually, mortality rate. If you look at white people since 1999, they are the only curve going up. Now, overall, black people still have a higher mortality rate, and these rates are usually um, given in like deaths per 100,000 people, so it's like a population-level statistic. But black people are still going down, so their rate is higher to start than white people, Mm -hmm. but just like everybody who lives in a developed country, it's still trending down. It's about like 2% of a decrease in mortality rates per year, and white people are going up. And we need a national conversation about that. If you disaggregate that data to say what are, because that's looking at all-cause mortality and say like what are the types of mortality that are contributing to excess deaths among white people, it's conditions of despair. It's suicide rates that are skyrocketing. This is also true in California. It's substance abuse rates, right? The opioid mm-hmm. epidemic is killing tons of white people. Mm-hmm. And why do white people carry despair when we also have this national narrative about white privilege and about white fragility and white people protecting themselves and the benefits that that leads them to in housing, in education, in healthcare? Like, those benefits are not protective from what it's like for white people to live in a white supremacist society. It's negative for them, mm-hmm. particularly if you're low income or you live in rural America, if you're isolated. So I think pushing, at least I've been pushing myself to think about how all these things are related and how we can have a narrative that allows us to target that for everyone. Because when we talk about racism, we're not just talking about black and brown people. Like, it makes everyone sick. If this episode ain't blowing your mind, y'all. <laughs> 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 we avoid everyone. Like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Oof. I'm inspired. Yeah. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just really pushing the boundaries of what does radical medicine mean? Or what mm-hmm. does radical healthcare mean? And yeah, we are so grateful to have you in this conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, thank Thanks. you so much. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Do you, I, I, know, I know you are inspiring so many of our listeners who are probably fired up <laughs> and probably going to look at that data. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a piece of advice um, to part with our listeners on maybe how you got here, what energizes you to continue doing this work, or just anything, really? Mm. 
I guess I would say don't be discouraged. Like if our listeners or honestly you ladies feel like you come from an identity or a background or a place in the country or a set of beliefs that have previously been excluded from what medicine considers professional or ideal or a good fit, quote unquote, like do not be discouraged. Like there is a place for you here. We want to have you here. We need your voice here. We need your thoughts here. And I always say, when you get here, just like you ladies are doing, change the game. Change the rules by which we play. I think when I think about my work to push institutions and to think about state-level policy now, it's all about changing the rules. Like, I want to be a rule maker because these are the rules. If we think about laws as rules, if you think about institutional culture as informal rules, like, rules are the way that things get done. And... If you have an idea about how they can be different, know that you belong here and that we want you to institute some new rules. You know, new rule, you're completely welcome here. Ooh. Yes. 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 <laughs> and that's cut. Yeah. <laughs>